Good morning. Uh, just a quick disclaimer. It's that time of year where if it's my turn to preach, I wake up congested and coughing. And so, as you know, for anyone who's been here for a while, I'll probably spend about five minutes coughing straight. So, if you can put up with that, I will get everybody a slice of pie afterwards. I just pulled that out of my hat. But if you can put up with the coughing, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get you some dessert afterwards, okay? Deal? Okay. All right. Uh, let's turn to John 17, and we're reaching a point in the book of John as we have been going chapter by chapter, following Jesus' ministry through the eyes of his disciple John. We are coming to a major transition point. And so we started this little section of the book back in chapter 13. And chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 were this deep uh, time of teaching and of Jesus putting into practice his theology, of showing his disciples what he wants them to do as he nears his time to leave them. And so they had the Last Supper together. They experienced Jesus washing their feet. Jesus started to share that he was going to leave. They were freaking out about that a little bit. They were upset. Jesus tries to comfort them, and then he goes into um, a few chapters of just rich theological teaching to encourage his disciples for the future. And then we get to chapter 17, and this is right before we're going to move into the road to the cross. After chapter 17, Jesus is finally going to bring his earthly ministry to a close as he goes to that final test that he's been prepared for, that he has been looking to the cross. And so in chapter 17, we get the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the whole Bible, and we get a glimpse into the heart of Christ as he kind of signs off in this time together, this final time together with his disciples before his death and resurrection, we get to see what Jesus really cares about and what he wants for those who will follow after him. This chapter is pretty easy to break down. There's three major sections. Your Bible probably already has that. Verses 1 through 5, verses 6 through 19, and verses 20 through 26. Yep, 26. These are the three sections, and these are what we're going to look at individually and consider what they mean together as a whole. And these three, these three sections are broken down this way. Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for the disciples in that room. And then Jesus prays for his future church. And so if you're here this morning and you're part of the body of Christ, that means Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for you. What his prayer for you would be the few moments before he's about to take on the wrath of God on the cross 
about to take on the sin of the world and about to defeat evil and death through his resurrection. These are the things that Jesus kind of sums up his whole ministry. Um, These are the things that are important to him. So let's consider verses 1 through 5 as Jesus starts out his high priestly prayer, praying for himself. Uh, Throughout this entire book and throughout this entire prayer, Jesus is not going to change his message one single bit. He's going to talk over and over and over again and mention and restate and rephrase this one foundational fact to the entire book of John, and that is that Jesus is God, that he and the Father are one. Every time I've gotten up here, um, I try to say that because it comes up in almost every single chapter. It comes up in almost every single thing Jesus does in the book of John. If you remember way back when we looked at John 1 in the introduction, we looked at several things that John wanted to make clear to people who read his account of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is, number one, that Jesus is God. If this is not true, this whole book has been a waste. If this is not true, the whole time that John followed Jesus on foot and Peter and James and the rest would have been for nothing. It would have been a hard and arduous, sometimes great, and sometimes really tough vacation. But it would amount to nothing more than a few men getting together and walking around the countryside. If Jesus is not God, then this prayer means nothing to you and to me. But Jesus says in the very first part of this prayer, he spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority, that's Jesus, over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And then later in verse 5, he says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The very first line in John chapter 1 is that the Word was with God in the beginning. And Jesus is saying, look, now we're coming full circle. We're coming full circle here at the end of my ministry, right before I go do the hardest part, right before I go secure the redemption of the sinner, do not forget and do not gloss over and do not let it become some simple thing that you don't consider that Jesus and the Father are one. You see, there still might have been some little doubt among these followers, right? I mean, they, can, they continually are coming up against Jesus saying this. The Father and I are one. And then he'll say something super offensive and shocking to them. And they'll say, well, how can you be one with the Father? And he keeps saying it over and over and over again. And as he is praying and pouring out his heart for himself and for his friends and for you, he makes this point again, and I don't think it's a little thing. And I don't think it's something that we should take for granted, but we should remind ourselves continually that Jesus is God. That's going to be foundational for the rest of this prayer as well. Because without that fact, the rest falls apart. Jesus' prayer for you amounts to little if he is not 
the holy God who has created this universe and created you and made a way for sinners to be redeemed and to become sons and daughters in the kingdom. So he says again, I and the Father are one. I am God. And I don't know if he's praying out loud in front of all of his disciples or if maybe later on he shared this with John after he comes back and is spending time with them. And maybe he's praying this to himself. But we get this intimate view of Jesus being concerned that people know that he is God. And then what else is interesting about this section where Jesus prays for himself is that because he is God, he is equating himself with God, he says, I pray, Father, that you will give my friends, my disciples, eternal life. This is why it's so important that Jesus makes it clear that he is God is because he wants to give eternal life. If you remember back from John 1, we looked at what the thesis statement for the whole book of John was, and it's at the very end in uh, the last chapter, and it says, these things are written so that you know that Jesus is the Son of God and that he can give you eternal life. And so Jesus is just summing up everything he's done, all of the miracles he's performed, all of the sermons he's preached, all of the confrontations he's had, he's summing it all up here before he prays for you. He's summing it all up so that you know what is absolutely true, that Jesus is your God, your creator, your father, and that he has the way to eternal life. Uh, a few chapters ago, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Um, and, I mean, we could go back and look at everything he said. And over and over again, he says, I am the way to eternal life. Paul, later on, after he's met the resurrected Jesus in Ephesians, he, he uh, describes it this way, what this means. In Ephesians 2, says this, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in who? Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul simply looks back over at what Jesus has taught, and he learns from the disciples, and then he puts it in his own words, and he's saying the exact same thing. He's making the very important point that Jesus is making. I have eternal life. And Jesus says in this prayer, in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that, you, that they may know you, that people, the disciples in that room, you here in this room, and anyone else, that people would know God, the only true God, and that they would know Jesus, whom you have sent. We're going to talk about this uh, a little bit later in, um, in the final section, but, and this is something Jesus has said over and over again too, but he's saying, listen, if you want to know who the Father is, what he looks like, what he thinks like, what he acts like, what he would say, what he would do, then you have to look to Jesus. God didn't stay up in heaven and say, well, you, guys, you just have to figure out 
what I would do, how I would be, what I care about. No, Jesus came and he said, I am the image. I am the reflection. I am God incarnate. And if you look at me and you study me and you see how I operate, then you know what God wants, what God cares for, how God would have you act or think or speak. Look to Jesus. And that's what he's saying here. And he keeps saying it. It's just the basic argument he's made this entire time for 17 chapters now. And he's going to put it on display in the next few chapters. And he says, look to me for salvation and look to me if you want to know what God is like. So he prays for those two things. He prays for um, that, that people would know that he is God and that they would put their trust in him, that he has the way to eternal life. And we wouldn't search elsewhere. We wouldn't search for things or for other philosophies or for any other thing than Jesus. Simply search for Christ. And he goes on and then he prays in the next section for those men in the, that room, the disciples in that room, the apostles, those who would spread his word right after he was leaving, those who would help establish the young church. He prays for them because they have a hard road ahead. Uh, and if you're just kind of keeping up with everybody, it's not looking too good before he leaves. Imagine what they're going to do after he leaves. These guys are, have been fighting through dinner. These guys have been challenging Jesus over and over again. Things don't look too good for his disciples, and they kind of know that. But he prays for them so that they'll be encouraged and empowered to carry on the mission that he set for them, that he has specifically chosen for them to do. I don't know if they looked back on their time and reflected back on this fact, but when you think that Jesus has chosen you specifically for a task, though you feel inadequate, though you feel overwhelmed, I think you can take courage and take heart that the God of the universe knows what he's doing, would not make a mistake and will help you to accomplish what he has for you to do. And I think part of this part of the prayer here, this section where Jesus prays for those disciples in that room, I think that is something that he wanted them to consider. After the emotional uh, toll of what was just about to happen, maybe they weren't going to consider it right now, but later on as they reflected back on their time with Christ, they could not say that Jesus was not preparing them for the future and did not care about how they operated without him. He was deeply concerned with that. When he said, I'm going to leave, and I have to leave, and it's good that I leave, they were upset. And he said, but you don't understand. I'm not going to leave you completely alone. I care for you, and I'll be with you every step of the way. And so this section of the prayer, I think, reflects that. And he prays for, we're going to look at three things that Jesus prays for, for his disciples in that room. And though it is specifically for the disciples in that room, I think we can uh, safely apply some of these same things to any disciple who would come after Christ. But the first thing he prays for for his friends in that room is that they would have the words as he says it. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me. This is verse 6. Out of the world, they were yours, Father, 
and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus makes a point in the first part to equate himself with God, and he rejoices in the fact that these men, as flawed as they are, as difficult as their relationships might have been with him at times, he rejoices in the fact that they know that Jesus is the only way to God. They have received the words or the word. Um, I think we can safely say that Jesus is referring to his teachings here, his gospel, what he's been trying to tell people, the words he's been sharing with those to give life and to give life more abundantly. He's, uh, he is thankful that his friends know the truth of who Jesus is and that they're going to have the opportunity to share it. But he also knows how difficult that's going to be in their time and in their, and in, um, in their culture, how difficult it's going to be to share this truth about Jesus because Jesus has already stirred up a, a bunch of conflict around him, right? And then he's going to leave And then they're going to have to carry on themselves. So he continues to pray for them. And he prays that they would experience joy. In verse uh, 13, it says this, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. I've given them your teachings. I've given them your gospel. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus knows that their road ahead is going to be difficult, that the path of the disciple is filled with conflict and suffering, that there are forces doing everything they can to stop people from following Jesus. But Jesus simply prays that his friends and that God would accomplish this in their life, that his disciples would know his joy. If you look back at the life of Christ from any of the Gospels, I would encourage you to go back and look through and consider what brought Jesus joy. It's not hard to uh, imagine, I have to... um, I have to convince you that Jesus went through hardships, that Jesus faced obstacles and conflict every step of his ministry, but he never gave up. And Paul, I think it is, that says, calls it the joy that was set before Jesus, that Jesus' mission was so important that bringing God into relationship with sinners was so important that no matter what he experienced, he was able to persevere, and not just persevere and just get by, but to experience joy in the process. And that doesn't mean a smile and happiness every minute of the day, but that means a hopeful looking forward and a desire to not give up, but to continually serve and carry out God's will. And Jesus prays his friends would be filled with that joy. He calls it my joy. The joy of Jesus would be in the life of his disciples. 
And then he ends this section by saying this, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, this is verse 15, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. So, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by truth. So Jesus has prayed that his disciples would know his words, fully trust and believe in his gospel, the truth, and share that. He has prayed that they would be filled with Jesus' joy, the joy that caused him to continue on despite the trials and tribulations. And then he says this, and he says it will be good for them to experience the hardship, to be sanctified. To be sanctified means to be changed from one way into another, and usually that sanctification comes through hardship. That sanctification comes through some type of suffering or trial or conflict or when you come up against a hard situation and you are forced to either rely on your own power or the power of Christ. And so Jesus says, I don't want them to be taken out of the world. I don't want my friends to not experience what it means to follow the disciple path. But Father, I want you to sanctify them as I have sanctified Myself. You see, Jesus is asking that his friends, his disciples, would experience his same type of life. That they would be about speaking the truth of God in everything they did. And that as they are being changed to look more and more like Jesus through their sanctification process, they would always be aware of the joy of Christ. That it would fuel them to continue to follow the path. Jesus is asking that his friends would experience his same type of life. And I don't think that that changes for the men in that room or for those of us who come well after. I think we can also expect, if you follow Christ, that Jesus would ask that we would experience his same type of life. And he ends his priestly prayer for those in the future, for his future church, with that in mind, that his disciples would live like him and experience life the way he did. He ends by saying, here's what you can do when I am not on this earth. When people don't know who I am anymore, here's what you can do. And in verse 20 through 26, he gives the future church their mission what they can do to live the life of Jesus, what you and I can do to live the life of Jesus. In verse 20, he says, I don't pray for these alone. I don't just pray for Peter and James and John and these men in this room, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Also for those who will believe in me as they hear the gospel preached, that they all may be, this is the most important thing that he says, one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Jesus prays that the future church, those who would come well after him, who have no uh, ties to 
the, the physical Jesus or his apostles, but who have um, come into this earth, not eating dinner with him or seeing him walk on water, those of us who have not seen him in flesh yet, he prays that those disciples would be unified, that unity in the body of Christ would be above all. And he says, why? Why is it so important that those who claim the name of Christ all believe the same thing and are one with Jesus? He says this in uh, verse 21, that the world may believe that you sent me. How do you convince a world that Jesus is God when they can't see him? when he's not feeding 5,000 people or turning water into wine, when he's not walking into a dead girl's room and bringing her back to life, or his friend Lazarus? How do you convince a world that Jesus is God? How do you convince a world that someone like Peter could go from an everyday ordinary fisherman to someone who could preach a sermon that 3,000 Christians were added to that day being a vessel for the power of the Spirit? How do you convince a world that that is true? How do you convince a world that Jesus is the only way to the Father? He says, so that people can believe, so that those who have not seen me will know that I want them when they look to the church, when they look to Christians, when they look to my disciples, I want them to see Jesus. I want them to see, just like the Father and I are one, they are unified in the mission and what it means. Paul, again, I'm going to uh, turn back to Ephesians. Paul kind of gives us an idea of practically what this means, what this can mean. Let me say that. What this should mean for those living in a time when, uh, when they can't see Jesus. What does it mean to be unified and how does that show Christ? In Ephesians 4, it says this. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. You see, if someone says, I'm a Christian or I'm a disciple of Jesus or I'm a follower of God, that should mean certain things. Like a brand that you see and you just know what it's about. That's what it, that's what it should mean when you say, I follow Jesus. Lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, there is one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. To follow Jesus doesn't mean to just do nice things how you would want them done. To follow Jesus doesn't mean to do anything how you would want it to be done. To follow Jesus means to do things the way Christ says to do them. And if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus... Jesus prays that that is what you will be about. Looking like Jesus. And when one person does that, it's amazing. And when thousands and thousands and 
and, and millions of people do that. Imagine the impact that the body of Christ can have in this world if everywhere you look you are seeing Jesus on every corner, in every house, in every area of life. You look around and you see Jesus. That's what he wants. That's what he prays for that you and I will be about. But not just that we will be unified in Christ looking like him, but that we will carry out that unity, similar to what Paul says, in love. He ends his high priestly prayer with this. Uh, In verse 24, Father, I desire that they, and that they is the you, if you're here and you follow Jesus, this is you. I desire that they who follow me, also whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known you, that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. You see, Jesus is, like I said before, throughout this entire prayer, he keeps equating himself to God and to things about God, God's characteristics, the things that are true about him. And he's doing that for a very specific purpose so that there's no one who can say, well, I know there's a God and I know he's about certain things and I know he wants love and unity and peace, but I don't know what that looks like or how I could ever do that. How could I accomplish what God wants done? And Jesus is saying, if you look to me, you can see how to do it. And he is praying for his church, for every disciple that would come after him. He is praying that they would be about these things. He calls it the Father's love. What is the Father's love? How do you know what God's love would look like? Well, back in John 1, uh, John makes the claim that Jesus is the illuminator of the truth of God. And so when Jesus, we look at Jesus, we see what God really is. So if you want to know what God's love is really like, then you have to look at Jesus. Uh, several times throughout the book of John, Jesus says that he's the water of life. He goes to people who are parched and dry, whose souls are being crushed with no hope. And he comes to them and he says, I can give you eternal life. I am the water you so desperately need. You only need to take one drink from me. I have hope for your life. The love of God is Jesus who would touch the leper. Uh, There's an account in one of the Gospels where a leper comes to Jesus. And I don't think it's any small detail that it says Jesus reached out and touched him to heal him. That would have been offensive to anyone looking around. You don't touch a leper for fear of getting their disease. And Jesus reached out and touched the diseased. 
That's the Father's love. Jesus fed the hungry miraculously, but he made sure that people had food to eat. Jesus welcomed the outcast into his circle, into his following, and so many other times. Jesus called ordinary people of no means, and he called them to come and be part of his kingdom, and to not just be a part of the kingdom, but be important members who would carry the kingdom forward. That's the love of the Father, so different than how we would normally think. If you're trying to build something great, you find extra, uh, extraordinary people. You find people with all the perfect gifts, and it helps if they already have them developed. But Jesus went for the people who no one would think about, and he looked at their humble hearts, and he said, they are willing to learn the way of salvation, and they're willing to trust that I and the Father are one, and I have the words of eternal life. And of course, in just a few chapters, we're going to read of the ultimate display of the Father's love, which is sending his son Jesus to die for the sinner, to die for his enemy, to die for the person who would say to God, I don't care what you think. I don't care for your ways. I want to be the king of my own heart. And he sends his son Jesus, and Jesus willingly goes. Philippians tells us he, he counted it um, as no loss to come and to die for you and me. If you want to know what the Father's love looks like, then look to Jesus. And then if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are to act the same way Christ would. You are to love the same way Jesus would. You are to care for the unity of the body the same way Jesus did. As many times as he said, I and the Father are one, I don't do anything other than what God would have me do. That is what you and I are called to do. And Jesus is praying earnestly that we would do that. So here's what I want to leave you with. And I want you to be encouraged with this. Because Jesus accomplished his work, right? He prayed for his work to be accomplished in the first section. And that happened. He did it. And then, he prays, and then he prays for his disciples and those who would become his apostles to accomplish their work, and it happened. Be assured that you, as a disciple of Jesus, who Jesus personally prays for, can do these things. It looks like, the world looks like, uh, like it might be too strong, like it might be too much to overcome. Evil often looks like it's going to win. And it seems like the name of Jesus is never going to go or, or bring the victory or, or whatever life experience you're having, whatever conflict, trial, and tribulation you're going through, oftentimes it feels like there's no hope. But be assured that because Jesus is God, he has the way of salvation, and he accomplished his first two parts of his prayer, that you and I will be able to carry on. You and I will be able to be unified in Jesus and love like Jesus. So, every day of your life, make sure you look like your Savior, like you speak like Jesus, that you think like Jesus, that you 
disagree with others like Jesus, that you act like Jesus and that you love those who could not possibly be loved like Jesus. That's what we're called to as his disciples, and that's what he prays for us to do moments before he's going to the cross. So take heart and be encouraged that Christ accomplished this, and you and I operate within the power of the God who is able to save sinners and to give life and life abundantly. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. And Jesus, thank you for your prayer, your prayer for me, your prayer for us, that you were concerned about what we would experience, what we would go through, and Father, that you gave us something to do. You didn't just leave us to figure it all out or to try to get lucky. But by your own example, you gave us exactly how we should think and act and speak. And so, Father, I pray that as we grow closer to you, we would develop more and more to look like Jesus, to be reflectors of him. The way that Jesus reflects the image of God, we would reflect the image of our Savior. And, Father, I thank you that uh, no matter what happens in this world, that the kingdom of God can never be defeated. And, Father, as your disciples, we are part of the the victory already. So, Father, give us hope to carry on and to be able to continue to spread the gospel and to show people that there's only one way, and that's through Jesus to eternal life. We ask you to, to be with us as we go and to show us how we can be your disciples this week. In your name, amen.